Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics we're discussing about the game we all love. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles and we're delighted to say we're being joined by Kevin Affleck, who is a media consultant at the Weekend's Heroes Watford Football Club, of course, not if you're a Liverpool fan. Um, welcome, Kevin. You've been on before. Are you uh, celebrating? We understand you're in Cardiff, so you've gone to the uh, gone to Wales just to keep up the celebrations. Is that correct? Yeah, I wish I could tell you some extended celebrations in 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 in, in sunny Cardiff, but um, just keeping my feet very much on the floor and um, taking in some under twenty three action. The big one, Cardiff under twenty three is the Watford under 23, so um, don't let anybody say um, this victory's gone to my head or I don't do the hard yards, that's for sure. Exactly. See, the people, this is what it's all about. A man who works every single day, no matter triumphs, I mean, he only picked an Oscar up a few weeks ago, um, <laughs> you know, and now he's now he's, now he's saw the end to Liverpool's unbeaten run, and now it's Cardiff under 23s. Right? The work never ends. Um we want to start, obviously, with uh, that remarkable um, uh, performance by Watford um, on Saturday evening, which, of course, um, brought to a halt the Liverpool juggernaut. Um, you're obviously around the club a lot, Kevin. You you see training, you talk to players a lot and people at the club. Did, could you have seen it coming, I guess, is the first question. Would you have seen it coming? Um, yeah. I'm going to say I did, and there's a few people who back me up. Mike Waters, Waters of the Daily Mirror will tell you that. Simon Collings of the Evening Standard, and I've been talking to Graham Stack, the goalkeeping coach, all week. I did feel it was coming, and just on the basis that there was no logic to it, really. Um, I think we'd noticed just a slight dip in Liverpool's form against uh, Norwich and West Ham games. They both won. Then they had that defeat against Atletico Madrid, and I just felt under the lights at, at Vicarage Road, which is always a a magical evening um, that something was just special was was in the offing. Um, I don't think I predicted quite the um, Watford wiping the floor with Liverpool, but I, I did actually see it coming. Sadly, um, my role prevents me from putting um, any money on it, but um, it was still quite satisfying nonetheless. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I did see it coming, but it was still truly, truly remarkable. And it's and it's Monday now, and it's still quite difficult to believe it. It, it took place really. This, Kevin, I mean, we're talking about a team here that had scored in 36 successive Premier League games. Watford ended that. They were going to set a new record for consecutive wins in the Premier League. Watford ended that. They were 44 matches unbeaten in total, just five off Arsenal's all-time record, and they ended that. But they also ended it with an XG of 2.7 to 0.2, which actually fits the score. I mean, it was really comprehensive. What what were the tactics? What what did Nigel Pearson see in Liverpool that he could take advantage of, and how did he set the team up through the week to do that? Yeah, well, he kind of set the template at Anfield. It was his first game in charge was at Anfield um, in December, and it was a bit of an onerous task going there. You thought, well, talk about a, a baptism of a fire, but they played really, really well at Anfield, and it was a, it was a twelve thirty kickoff just before Christmas, and you thought. Oh, is it kind of you know that you get that apathy on on an early kickoff and it was freezing cold and Liverpool were in a hectic run of games and you thought perhaps a Liverpool are a little bit off it but two 0 really flattered Liverpool that day and I remember speaking to a senior Watford official after that one and they said Kenny Dalglish came up to them in the boardroom and said that was a tougher home game as we've had all season and I don't think he was kind of in, indulging the, the Watford official there I think he was being I think he was being genuine. Um, and, and kind of things kick-started for, for Watford and Pearson after that. They got four four wins and a draw in the next five games. So that was kind of the launch pad. So he'd seen something in, in Liverpool. He'd, he'd sense a weakness. He, he felt he could get them down the wide with the searing pace of Delafoe and, and Saar. And, and it was nearly exactly the t- same team he fielded then. And they're meticulous. I know all coaches will say that, but they're meticulous in their in their preparation. And I just sensed that his press comments on Thursday, there was a little sparkle in his eye, a little glint that he, he thought he had the, had the measure of Liverpool. Now, he was never going to come out and say, oh, yeah, I think we can beat them. He just said, but if we're at our best and they're off, then I, I think we've got a chance. But what struck me was he wasn't prepared to just turn up and have Watford have their tummy tickled by Liverpool, just kind of be 
a passenger kind of in their in their coronation as the to set in their uh, top flight record for for most consecutive wins. He felt they could really really get at them, and um, I think he transferred that belief to the players, and, and the players executed the game plan to the letter. And I think speaks speaks volumes for him as a coach, really, because he can say all he likes in in the week, but the players had belief in in what he was saying, and and they they were magnificent. I think I wrote in my report some of them had the performances of of their lives really that they were that good. What what was the game plan, Kevin? Because it seemed that there seemed to be quite a bit of focus on taking advantage of first nullifying Liverpool's full-backs, who, who we know are responsible for creating a lot of their chances, but then also taking advantage of the fact that they pushed their full-backs up the field. It seemed like there was a lot of balls going diagonally in behind Robertson and Alexander-Arnold almost as soon as Watford gained possession. Yeah, it's interesting you say nullify, kind of, you think kind of double up against them, but I think the tactic was... is give them something to think about and, and make them go the other way. And, and let's see how comfortable they are going away. Get the ball in behind them as, as quickly as they can. But Delafoe, sadly, before he went off, was having a fantastic game. But I remember speaking to a, to a punter after the game at Anfield. Delafoe gave um, Trent Alexander-Arnold up there as tough a game as he's had all season. And I remember on the back of that, Tony Cascarino on TalkSport said they thought Liverpool should even sign Delafoe. He was that good. But the key was to get as many men behind the ball as possible when Liverpool had possession, particularly with the midfield three of Capu, Hughes and Dukure, who really are a, a terrific triumvirate there. And then when when you break, when you counter-attack, counter really commit to it, really commit bodies, get men in behind and break quickly. And Liverpool just couldn't really handle, they couldn't handle the pace of Saar, the trickery of Delafoe and then the... Um, the strength and muscle of Dini, and it's, it really is a, is a potent, potent front three, really. So, in a nutshell, that was really the game. Let them worry about us more than us worrying about them, really. Kevin, often in, in these scenarios, that you can look back, and, and this has nothing to do with hindsight uh, as such, because um, it only transpires, if you like, um, in the game. But I hear players talk a lot about smelling something different going into a game. There's little details, maybe something in training. Uh, you know, just something, something, a couple of things maybe happen in the, in the week or even in the morning of the game, and, and it makes the player believe even more. They might get result. Was there anything like that going on last week? Yeah, if I did say that, Ian, you'd think in, in the build-up to a game like that against the champions elect, the world champions, the, the European champions, it'd be full-on double sessions, tactical analysis. But he really relaxed the players on Thursday... We, we, send a, we send a videographer to training every day and a cameraman, and they said, no videographer and cameraman at training today. And I'm thinking, right, what's going on there? Is it kind of behind closed doors? Are they doing some real intense tactical work? And he actually took the players off for a swimming and yoga session on Thursday. <laughs> you wouldn't have kind of the Nigel Pearson down as, a, as, a, as doing kind of... As a yoga man, no, I wouldn't have. No, exactly. So um, I think that it kind of changed the player's mindset. It really relaxed things and, and breaked up the monotony of, of what can sometimes be quite repetitive training week. So, look, I'm not saying that was the sole reason behind the victory, but I think it changed the player's mindset. It really reacts them and, 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 he, and he freshened them up. And I think the main thing with the players is he knows Pearson and, and Craig Shakespeare, who shouldn't be forgotten in this, really. This is, this is a guy who um, supersized Sam, as, as you affectionately refer to him as... Um, took him to England with him when, when he got the England job. He's played a real part in this, but both of those coaches have got the players' backs. They put arms around shoulders and they put smiles on faces. And I think that was really played a real part in, in, in this seismic win, really. How, what's the, um, the verdict on Gerard De La Because obviously the, 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 the downside of that victory was the injury he suffered under um, quite a heavy challenge from Virgil van Dijk which looked like it was going to be a, a severe one. Do they, do they have a diagnosis on, on his condition yet? Yeah, they do. It's not good news, Duncan. Um, uh, it looked a bad one. You just sensed by the, the speed with which the medics ran onto the field and he came off with, on, on oxygen, I think. Pierce, Nigel Pearson confirmed yesterday he's, um, he's done the ACL in, in his right knee. So that's, um, that's his season over. So that's a, that's a, real, a real blow um, because... He gave, he gave Trent Alexander-Arnold a, a, a real tough going over and um, he was at the heartbeat of everything Watford did well early on. So that's the one downside from an, an otherwise memorable day, really. And, and But it's not a bad replacement, really. They got Roberto Pereira. 
he'll probably he's coming on mm. on the left hand side of that front three now and he's a serious performer this guy this is a guy who he trains with Messi and, and Dybala and Di Maria with Argentina and he played in the European uh, in the Champions League final so Juventus so um He's, he's a serious, he's a serious player. That guy. No, no foul given. I think for that challenge by Van Dijk, was there any um, disgruntlement in the camp about the refereeing of, of that incident? No, there wasn't. I've, I've seen a few people mention it. Um, I must admit, I haven't seen the challenge again. It didn't strike me initially as as, as a bad one, but I think Pearson, being Pearson, he, he didn't want to kind of detract from the positive things the players did and focus on a potential negative by by digging out referee Michael Oliver for perhaps not issuing a card or, or at least a word with, with Van Dijk on that. So I think he was just keen not to detract from, from, from what, was a, what was a special day. Fantastic performance as well, Kevin, by Ishmael Saar, obviously. Wow. Lightning quick. And, and a player who has found it quite difficult, um, it's fair to say, to find his feet at Watford, you know, came in as record signing, etc. And, um, you know, he wasn't a favourite player of, of, of at least one of the previous managers. He seems to really be thriving, though. Yeah, it's... It's been really fascinating kind of working in the inner sanctum and, and you see kind of a side of the game that fans don't really appreciate. You see this kid come over from from France at, at 21 and, and you think, oh, he's just going to hit the ground running and start tearing up. But when you speak to these guys and, and, and you get close to them, you realise it really is a, a, a kind of take a while to get them to integrate and assimilate into, into the culture, in, into football. Now, I remember when I, on a much lesser level, I moved abroad and it took me a while to get my, my apartment sorted, kind of get used to the way of the UAE. And, and I lived in Abu Dhabi and, and probably uh, I didn't probably produce my best work for a month or two months or three months. Some would argue if I produce my, produce my best work at all. But I think it just <laughs> gives an indication into how difficult it is to come over from a different country and settle. He's a 21 year old kid, really. Um, he came over on his own. He was living in a hotel, didn't speak a word of English. Um, he was missing his girlfriend. He was missing his parents. And then you kind of expect him to come into a new league, uh, big price tag, and just start tearing it up. And, and, it, and it just doesn't happen like that. So it's really intriguing to see how it does take players um, a while to settle in. But boy, is he settled in now. And, in, and he, he, looks, he looks a superstar. And without wishing to line the pockets of, of the Watford's owners even further, I can't believe his, his value didn't probably double on the back of that performance, given the reach of... The game got worldwide. I thought he was. I thought he was sensational. What I mean, Watford, the Puzzle family spent a lot of time making that deal happen in the summer um, to get him from Ron. It's obvi- obviously a, a a purchase where they they're looking for the player to adapt to the Premier League and then sell him on at significant profit. Um, he's now got five goals and eighteen appearances, which is a decent return for uh, for a first season in the Premier League, particularly a club that's um, struggling. Uh, to fight against relegation. Are, are you hearing anything in terms of uh, interest from other clubs in SAR for the summer? I'm not, I'm not hearing of, uh, of any interest, but I think... Or, or are you not listening, Kevin? You're just not I, listening. Yeah, I'm, I'm just walking <laughs> <down>. <laughs> um, Yeah, I, I think it would be... I think it'd be obvious there would be significant interest in him, particularly if he continues like this. But the, the, the club's hierarchy, uh, owner Gino Pozzo and, and chief executive and chairman Scott Duxbury always welcome that kind of interest because it means they've got a player that's, that's doing really, really well, who they'll cash in on one day at a premium price and given the vast scouting network they've got, the next one will come in off the conveyor belt. They, they sold Richarlison for top money to Everton and then a couple of seasons after, Saar comes in. So knowing the way they work, they'll already have <laughs> the, the Saar's replacement in, in, in their mind. But, yeah, I, I just think they, if he carries on the way he's doing, I think the, the interest in him is inevitable. I, I thought he looked like a, I thought he looked a superstar. And that finish when he basically sat Alisson down and, and chipped it over him, I thought that was the hallmarks of a, of a top, top player. And to do it on that stage against that opposition... And let's not forget, it was his first game back after, what was it, five or six weeks out with a hamstring injury? You, you wouldn't have known that. Um, and I think he played that well. They were only due to give him 60 minutes, from what I understand, because they want to make sure they got him for the run-in for the rest of the season. But he was just playing so well. And I think basically he didn't want to come off and they had to drag him off after, was it, 80, 82 minutes. But a real side of his game, which, which is interesting, and 
doesn't get seen is I spoke to uh, Adrian Mariapa, the right back who has been playing behind him, and I said, God, what, what must it be like with Saar kind of bombing forward? Is, is it tough? Do you get isolated? He said, you're joking. He said he's an absolute dream to play with. He said he does, I think in the game, he does the doggies all day, up and down, up and down, and he doesn't moan, moan a bit, doesn't moan at all, gets in position. I think he's doing kind of 10, 12 kilometres a game, which is which is remarkable, really. He's, he's some athlete, and I think he's going to be going to be some player. Certainly not do him and the Pozzo family any harm to have that uh, highlight in his uh, in his reel of him accelerating away from Virgil Van Dijk, the supposed um, invincible centre back who nobody can run past. He left him for dead, didn't he? He did, yeah. It was and it was telling the way Van Dijk seemed to recognise he wasn't going to get back to Sar there, and and um, it was up to Allison to stop the the goal from happening. Well, he was quite humble afterwards. I know people trot out the cliches, oh, it's all about the team and, and it's all about the three points, but he's generally a, a very, very humble lad and he's just interested in his football. And I thought a great line that came in the week, he said about um, how he misses his family and looks after them. And I think a reporter said to him, how do you look after him? And he said, he's bought his dad some more sheep on his farm, which I thought was, was lovely. Brilliant. Most footballers <laughs> kind of give their, their, their dad an expensive watch or a house or... Or he, he gave his dad some sheep, which I think is a lovely line and sums the lad up, really. I could make a joke about him joining you in Cardiff here, but Indeed. I think I'll avoid it. Indeed. He is. I think he's, he's still... Uh, he's aged to play for the 23s, though. Um, <laughs> and, of course, so, Kevin, the £178 million question, and that is, will Watford stay up? Yeah, it, I listened intently to Jurgen Klopp afterwards, and he was... To give him huge credit, he was very magnanimous, same with beaten fair and square... And he raised a very, very poignant question, really. Basically, what on earth are Watford doing in that position with a squad like that? And he's right. And I think if they play anything like that, um, they'll have no no qualms at all. I, I just think the one thing they've got to guard against is thinking they've scaled the mountain and then spend too long admiring the view, really. I think it's important they then back it up at Crystal Palace on Saturday and they got Leicester in their next home game. But I think teams will be... Will be fearing Watford. I think there'll be a few above Watford looking over their shoulder, thinking, Watford are on the charge here. We, we might get sucked back into this." Um, I think they've got too much to stay up. The squad is fully fit, apart from Delafoe. It's got too much depth. But the only thing you need to guard against is complacency. But listen, from afar, I think you get a flavour of what Nigel Pearson's like, and I can't imagine him standing for for too much complacency in that camp. Just before we move on from Watford, um, that. It did seem that a result, a good result, was coming. We, you watched the the Manchester United game, and obviously the result went exactly the opposite way against Manchester United. But their tactical plan in that match was good at the start of the game. Put United under a lot of pressure with their their aggressive pressing of the defence and and Fred and and created some chances early on that on a, on another day uh, might have given them the the early lead. Um, tell us a bit about how they set up for that match and. Was there, was there a degree of disappointment in the camp to come away with that result in the end? Yeah, Pearson's not a man you, you, you want to upset or get on the wrong side of. But, and as he walked down the tunnel at half-time, he was absolutely furious because they'd given away that penalty just before half-time. And a needless penalty, really. Um, and he knew what a good opportunity that was. Um, again, the players had executed the game plan to the letter, which looked to me like it was a high press and basically get on Fred uh, Fred picking up possession was the trigger for the press. They got all over him. I think Deeney's, had Deeney put that chance away early on, it could have been a very different game. Um, the Old Trafford crowd would have got on their backs. United would have been forced to come out and then Watford pick them off on, on the break. So it didn't work out that day, but you sure saw signs of what they were trying to do and that they weren't far away. The result flattered Manchester United and I felt it was a very um, a missed opportunity because I felt that was the one of the poorest Manchester United teams I've seen. I've been gone to Old Trafford in the past and you're thinking, it's damage, damage limitation. Ronaldo, <clears throat> the team, Henrik Larsson, Wayne Rooney, you know, reel them off, Cristiano Ronaldo. You're thinking, if we get out of here, having just conceded four, we've done well. But I thought they were there, there for the taking. It was a missed opportunity. The players sensed that. And I think um, it just all came together against Liverpool. It certainly did, Kevin. Um, a lot of our listeners will remember your uh, last appearance, uh, last, maybe last but one, um, when you were talking about your, 
we well, spoke through your time in Abu Dhabi, uh, working um, for the newspaper there. And uh, we have to uh, give great credit to you because um, you entirely predicted the way that you would expect Manchester City and indeed uh, the, those who own uh, Manchester City um, to react to any ban or punishment given to them by UEFA over the financial fair play rules. Um, so we'll just remind listeners that that was last year. You can go back and we'll, we'll reference the podcast and social media for you. I guess you weren't surprised then, Kevin, given that's what you predicted. Um, or do you think, were even you surprised, if you like, the aggression shown in the way that, that City responded uh, to the punishments? No, not, not surprised at all, really. Um, having worked in the UAE and the Emirate of Abu Dhabi for, for four years, this is a, an aggressive uh, regime, one who kind of fights fire with fire and um, is, is not a regime to kind of take things lying down, really. You just have to look at the, 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 uh, the background of the, of the um, royal family. So you've got the uh, president, Sheikh Khalifa, he kind of did his education at, at, at Sandhurst. You've got uh, the crown prince, Sheikh Mohammed, who's basically the de facto ruler of the country. I think he's commander of the armed forces. Um, there, so this this is a this is a regime kind of built on kind of defence and and ready for battle. So they were always going to come out firing, always going to come out um, swinging. And and I think I read somewhere it might be in a piece from Jonathan Liu. Um, he said they've kind of got a 600 million super yacht, which is two thirds of the size of Titanic, and it's um it's uh, reportedly armed with a, a missile defence system. So this is a this is a regime and and a family kind of. Uh, ready for battle, kind of tooled up, if you like. So they were never going to take this um, this uh, kind of a, a article, is it Article 56, Section A of the UEFA kind of financial flair play rules bother them. Do you think they'll back down at any point? Do you think, I mean, it, we saw from that statement that uh, Manchester City made that they, they emphasised first instance they would go to Cass. Um, if Cass doesn't give them the verdict, they want, i.e., allowing them to carry on in the Champions League. Do you um, do you see them going to a national court, perhaps a Swiss court first, and then the European Union court? Um, and even if they they lose those cases, finding some other way to um, inflict damage on UEFA if they don't get what they want in this in these circumstances. Because you worked obviously in Abu Dhabi, you're working closely. You can hear this on the podcast with. Um, one of the directors of Manchester City, Simon Pearce, who um, is responsible for advising the government on a number of serious matters and is quoted in a number of those emails that were used. UEFA's um, club financial control body made the decision to ban Manchester City from the Champions League. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, very fortunate to work with closely with, with Simon Pearce. Um, put it out, he's a very, very good operator, but um, he's main remit is to is to protect the reputation and and the status of of, of Abu Dhabi and it and its uh, and its royal family um, I think they'll take it as far as they possibly can I, I think sometimes you get cases like this where lawyers bills kind of start to rack up and, and you settle just before it gets to court but obviously money's not issue for a, for a family I think whose combined wealth is 150 billion so I can't see them backing down. I think they'll be extremely aggressive on this. And I think I've, I talked about the anecdote before when um, Platini first kind of mooted um, talk of financial fair play and City not complying. I remember one of the, the, the senior City officials said to me, we'll take it to, to Sarkozy and they can forget kind of our political support. And the then president of France, obviously, um, we'll take it to Sarkozy if, if Platini doesn't call the dogs off, and and you just have to look at their, the way they act in kind of uh, the political world and their manoeuvring. I think in 2015, and um, there was emails uh, leaked saying um, if David Cameron kind of didn't um, crack down on the Muslim Brotherhood and and rein in the in in the BBC, um, they would block their arms deal and cut investment in the UK. So that's how wide ranging and, and far reaching their influence is, and they're a very powerful country, super rich country. Um, and I think they'll um, they'll use all their resources and all their political power to make sure um, this is this is dropped and their reputation is restored. But what's important here is not just the reputation of Manchester City; it's the representation of of Abu Dhabi. 
And of course, Manchester City are not just uh, facing a fight on one front, as it were, uh, in terms of UEFA. They're also being investigated uh, for similar financial fair play um, transgressions under the Premier League's own rules uh, for um, uh, the spending of any club in any one season. Um, Duncan, this uh, is becoming a lot more uh, high profile, almost as if... Um, some people are briefing in the media and elsewhere that the Premier League are intending to take a tough stance and follow UEFA's example. Yeah, I, I think UEFA's ban on Manchester City has caused a problem for the Premier League because they now have to be seen to act um, against transgressions and invest at least to investigate whether their own rules have been transgressed and if they there is a finding that they have been transgressed then to act upon that and I, I think politically but also commercially this is difficult for the Premier League if you go through the history of controversions of, of, of rules in, in the Premier League they, they do not like to invoke points deductions um, there seems to be a general consensus that they will not strip a title or titles from Manchester City, even if they find them to have broken the rules um, during the period when they became champions of the Premier League. Um, so you, you look then to alternative punishments if they have to invoke punishments. Do they go for a transfer ban? Um, that would be one solution which would have an impact, obviously, on the competition, but not as great an impact as, for example, deducting 10, 20, 25 points from Manchester City for a coming season. And you can imagine if this decision was taken in the next few months ahead of the start of next season, Manchester City to be punished with a, a significant points deduction, that would effectively... Um, make Liverpool almost certainties if they can continue their their um, their current state of performance on the field for the next season's Premier League title. Who would, who competes with Liverpool if Manchester City are taken out with a big points deduction? Then what happens to the Premier League's product? Um, you want they want a a title race. They want if possible, the title race to go to the wire. We've had the, the former chief executive of the Premier League after Manchester City um, concluded their, their record-breaking season, saying that he wanted to see other teams competing for the title, which antagonised a lot of Manchester City fans for, for obvious reasons. But you remember, primarily, the Premier League is a product, its success, its ability to, to be the league that has the financial wherewithal to drag in top players from all around the globe is based upon selling broadcasting rights, it's based upon people wanting to watch the games, it's based upon competitive football. So the Premier League's own interest is in maintaining that competitiveness, which I think has to be a factor should they have the courage to also um, investigate aggressively if they find that the, the breaches of rules are to the Premier League rules as well as those of the Champions League um, and of UEFA to then aggressively act upon that? What sanctions do they choose? I think they choose the ones that don't impact the, the, the product, the competitiveness of, of the league and therefore financial sanction or at strongest, a transfer window ban. And Kevin, we have this kind of, it's, quite, it's not anomalous as such, but the Premier League is an entity, whereas, uh, which is uh, in shared ownership, it was 20 stakeholders. Now, it's quite simple, isn't it? You ask 20 stakeholders, or 19 of them, excluding Manchester City, um, do you think they behaved in a correct and proper manner if they're found guilty of transgressing financial fair play rules in, in this country, not even just UEFA, then do you think they should be punished? Now, so you're looking at 19 other stakeholders who all want the Premier League to be more competitive, you've got to assume, um, and say, OK, well, you know, we wouldn't mind if you docked them a few points because it gives us a better chance of getting in the Champions League next season. So um, it's a quite a, a kind of strange situation that the Premier League finds itself in. Absolutely, and it's one... Premiership uh, Rugby found itself in, in recently to, to kind of switch sports for a second because uh, Saracens were obviously found guilty of, of breaching the salary cap. Now, they didn't think twice about um, 
the effect on, on their brand, Saracens, are obviously the arguably one of the or the best club rugby side in the world, the dominant premiership uh, team, multiple-time champions. They didn't think, think twice about their brand there, and they dished out the most draconian punishment. They docked them 35 points to start with for breaching the salary cap. Then when they thought, oh, Saracens are that good, they might even still survive after a points deduction like that. They doubled that points deduction to make sure they went down. So, And I think there was a feeling among the Premiership Rugby Clubs that this had been going on for a while. It wasn't a level playing field. There was a lot of whispers and there was a lot of anger that they'd been kind of circumventing the rules and um, not not making it a level playing field. So Premiership Rugby took the strongest possible stance on, on that. And then they got their biggest club and their team packed with England internationals. No qualms about that, about those players playing in the championship next season and breaking up that side. So it's a fascinating dilemma here that the, the Premier League have got because I'm sure other clubs will be aware of, of perhaps some of the um, salary breaches they're talking about and, and or alleged salary breaches and alleged financial um, fair play um, issues. But whether the Premier League are willing to take that stance is another matter. I'm not so sure because, as Duncan says, that, that they're all about their their brand and I just can't see them following going down the same line as, as, as Premiership Rugby but I think it's an issue that's going to drag and drag on and drag on and I think it will provide you um, with plenty of uh, airtime going forward. I think, I think it feeds back into what you've just been telling us Kevin, the difference with the Premiership Rugby situation is that um, Manchester City are, in the words of the former Chief Executive, a proxy brand for Abu Dhabi. So you have the weight of Abu Dhabi, that massive wealth as a threat against anyone who uh, invokes punishments that Manchester City, Abu Dhabi decide they want to take legal action against. So they are now taking legal action against UEFA at CAS and, and saying that will be in the first instance. So they're prepared to take it further. You could see a similar situation where the Premier League to invoke punishments that Manchester City aren't happy with. And you know, we're talking about an entity here that has contravened the rules of four different governing bodies so far. You know, they, they were found guilty of breaching FA anti-doping regulations in Pep Guardiola's first season at the club. They were found guilty of breaching FIFA rules against the recruitment of minors. They were found guilty of uh, breaching Premier League rules on academy recruitment uh, and received a ban over academy recruitment. And they've been now been found guilty twice of breaking UEFA fin financial fair play rules. So, you know, th there's a pattern there. It's, uh, I can't think of another club that's been found guilty of from four different authorities of breaking rules. But the question always comes back to the real politic of how brave are the authorities to be able to be prepared to invoke and exercise punishments that fit the crimes of a club that has seen the rule book and decided they don't want to adhere to the rule book. We're going to allow Kevin to head off to Cardiff under-23s versus Watford under-23s, but we want to thank him hugely, Kevin, for coming on and giving the benefit of your insight once again. Uh, we certainly hope that you'll join us in the transfer window soon. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Uh, and don't worry, uh, all our listeners, we have also provided some tools for Kevin, just in case he doesn't meet anyone else who's tooled up on his way, his way to that game. <laughs> Uh, as ever, we like to protect our guests against anything, you know, untoward happening to them. So Liverpool's defeat uh, was certainly not the only talking point over the weekend's games, um, Duncan. Uh, Manchester United uh, were the benefit beneficiaries, we have to say, uh, of another... VAR decision, which was turned over by the video assistant referee on a subjective basis, having um, the original decision was given against them. And of course, that was when uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin's deflected shot uh, beat David De Gea. Um, well, Gilfie Sigurdsson was not in an offside position because the law of the game says that he wasn't offside because he wasn't actually involved in play. Uh, but PGMOL Duncan gave a very odd interpretation of laws which are actually very straightforward in the aftermath of the game to try and justify John Moss brackets side close brackets decision who was that VAR well I wouldn't say the laws are straightforward 
I think offside has always been a complicated law, and we've had a lot of. It's it's a law which has changed on a regular basis, um, and it's a law that has been changed in general to to benefit the attacking team and to try and have more goals scored. But it is a clear law, the way it's framed, even if. Um, not all supporters of the game understand exactly how the law is framed and, and it seems not all referees are capable of applying it as it's framed. Um, the PGOMOL official reasoning for why the goal had been chalked off was that uh, they say in a statement the on-field decision was to award the goal but the VAR advised the referee that Sigurdsson was in an offside position directly in the line of vision of David De Gea and made an obvious action that impacted De Gea's ability to make a save. The problem I think they have here is that if you read the rules, the law actually says it's it's not about being in the line of vision. It says it's only an offside offence to be in an offside position on various conditions. One of those conditions is that you're preventing an opponent from playing or be able or being able to play the ball by clearly obstructing the opponent's line of vision. Now that is at the point when your teammate strikes the ball. And you can go back and look at the point at which Calvert-Lewin strikes the ball. Um, Sigurdsson is sitting on the ground in front of De Gea, who's um, I think one meter 92. De Gea is not at his full height, but he is clearly, his line of vision is not being obstructed or being clearly obstructed by Sigurdsson. He can see how Calvert-Lewin is shooting and where he's shooting to. In fact, De Gea responds to Calvert-Lewin's shot by diving to the right-hand side, which is where the ball is going until it hits Maguire. Uh, Maguire's deflection makes it essentially impossible for De Gea to save because he's put his weight and moved his body to the right-hand side and is not going to get back to um, stop the ball going into the net. Now, if, if Sigurdsson had touched the ball, then it would have been offside. If he, if he tried to play the ball, then it would be an offside. But he has to actually clearly attempt to play a ball, which is close when the, this action impacts an opponent, or... Um, make an obvious action which clearly impacts on the ability of an opponent to play the ball. He doesn't do either of those. What he does is he sees the ball is going to hit him and he moves out of the way of the ball to allow it going into the net. So Sigurdsson understands the offside law and understands that he, his offence of being in an offside position only comes into play if he makes contact with the ball. So moves his foot out of the way to avoid doing so. Um, so... I, I defy anyone to read those laws in detail and see exactly how Sigurdsson transgressed the law. The VAR made a very quick decision on this. There's an argument from Everton's side that not only was the VAR John Moss wrong to, by the letter of the law to give an offside for that um, incident, but he also ignored that the reason Sigurdsson was sitting on the ground in front of De Gea was because he had just taken a shot, um, which De Gea had a fantastic save from, um, and been hit by Wan-Bissaka um, after he'd taken his shot on goal. So Wan-Bissaka fouls Sigurdsson in the area in an attempt to make a last-ditch tackle. Harry Maguire's coming in on the other side. It's not clear from the video whether, whether Maguire also contacts um, Sigerson or not, but he's very close to him. So Sigerson's on the deck because he's been fouled by Wambsaka. De Gea makes a save. If you're reviewing that on VAR, you can go back to the foul and say, well, any decision over offside is irrelevant because um, there was a foul in the box, which is a penalty kick preceding um, the, the ball going in the net. So if, if I think if I, if I want to make a case for offside and rule out the goal, then I can go back to the next incident and give a penalty. Um, and we've seen in recent games uh, Manchester United, in fact, benefiting from a goal being scored by the opponents and a foul being given against uh, Cesar Aspilicueta um, for touching an opponent after he had, in fact, been fouled and pushed into um, uh, Brandon Williams by Fred. Um, so he, the VR had the ability to do that, but refuses to do it. He 
contradicts the correct decision of the linesman and the referee on the pitch. Um, to add insult to injury, um, in Carlo Ancelotti's case, he goes up and questions the referee after the match and gets red carded um, with, with Chris Kavanagh pointing in his face after showing him the red card. And I think Ancelotti showed uh, great restraint in not complaining um, and not uh, arguing back with to Kavanagh after he'd been shown the red card and walking off the pitch. But in context, I think we, we see another example of, of, of the problem with VAR. It's not just that the decisions are wrong. It, as we've talked about in the podcast before, there's a tendency for referees, for officials, to go in favour of the bigger, wealthier teams in these situations, particularly when... They're a team like Manchester United who everyone knows are under huge financial and sporting pressure this season to qualify for the Champions League. They will lose a significant amount of money if they fail to get into the Champions League two years running because various commercial deals will have sums deducted from them and it will make it more difficult for them to sign players in the summer. In the past two weeks, we've seen two games where VAR decisions have gone in Manchester United's favour in a very significant way. We saw Harry Maguire kicking uh, Mitsubatsuai in the testicles in front of the fourth official, the 22nd minute of a game, um, an action which even Paul Scholes described as a clear red card, no red card given. Um, Manchester United end up playing the rest of the game with their defender on the pitch instead of having to defend 70 minutes with, with 10 men. Maguire scores a goal in that game. Um, I think there's a fair argument that had the VAR made the correct decision there, Manchester United would be at least two points worse off, quite possibly three points worse off. Then they play Everton, a game that's also um, features two teams competing for Champions League football. They have lost the game with that goal going in in the last minute and the VAR decides that it isn't a goal Decision goes in Manchester United's favour. That's another point with Manchester United, which keeps them within range of the fourth and fifth place, which may also be Champions League qualification. If you look at the decisions over the course of this Premier League season, now there's a there's a table of VAR overturns. We've said before in the podcast that table of VAR overturns isn't perfect because it only gives you... Um, the cases in which a VAR has taken action to change a decision. It ignores the cases where VAR hasn't intervened. For example, um, in a couple of Liverpool goals where there was handball in the build-up, the VAR chose not to intervene. So it doesn't give you that ideal um, assessment of who, which teams have fully benefited from VAR and which teams have been hampered with it. But what it does have in it is a list of the number of subjective decisions that have been overturned by a VAR in favour of each team. Manchester United have not had a single subjective decision overturned against them in, the, in this season in the Premier League. They've had six subjective decisions overturned in their favour, um, which is more than any other club. I think there you have the evidence of what we've been talking about in the podcast is that the system of VAR, the ability you have of, of having a second individual to go in and have a look whenever a goal is scored or whenever a penalty decision has to be made about a significant team, gives these officials who we know are under pressure to give decisions in favour of the bigger teams. This is something that's well established in football, we've known about for years and years and years, gives them a second opportunity to act on that almost certainly unconscious bias and, and fear of giving decisions against bigger teams, but they do so. Um, it's a problem with VAR. It's a problem that's affecting the Champions League qualification situation for this season in the Premier League. And it, it's a problem that's got significant ramifications in terms of budget, money coming into clubs, um, what they'll be able to do to, to rebuild their teams for next season. In terms of, um, we've, we've talked about it, uh, referees and VARs, uh, there are all sorts of situations which complicate um, these kind of decisions, uh, including um, the fact that there is a, a healthy rivalry between referees and match officials with regards to appointments, etc. We've made this point before. 
And uh, remember, if a referee gets something right or wrong on the pitch, then that's marked by a referee, someone who goes out and, and actually uh, watches the game and gives them a, a mark and grading for each time they perform. Again, that's human uh, interest, human error, human nature, you could call it. And so that's just one of the things that's involved where I think someone once said, it might have been Jonathan Northcroft actually, who said, uh, Duncan, that um, VR is not just one huge computer who always gets the decisions right 100% of the time. It's just another level of human intervention uh, based on technology. So um, this is going to be a problem. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, we know it's not going away. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, it's been extremely detailed, uh, we have to say, with regards to uh, giving you the inside scoop on how Watford ended Liverpool's bid for a record-breaking 21 consecutive victories in the Premier League. Um, uh, we certainly hope that you've enjoyed uh, the fact that we've given you the other side of the coin. I think a lot of um, coverage of that particular game was, you know, understandably what had gone wrong for Liverpool, whereas uh, I think you'll agree Kevin Affleck gave us a wonderful insight into what, how it all went right for Watford and the idea um, of Nigel Pearson doing yoga still makes me shiver. Um, we're going to finish off today's podcast as it's Monday with our heroes and villains. Um, Duncan, I'll let you go first with your hero because he's someone who we've not mentioned yet on today's pod but certainly deserves a very, very um, huge amount of credit for recent performances. Yeah, I mean, obviously Nigel Pearson's going to be one of the heroes of the week but I think Diogo Jota also deserves a mention um, and we'll get this Hero of the Week award in tandem with Nigel Pearson for his performances for, for Wolves recently. Um, he's turning into one of the, the most decisive forces in in uh, in that Wolves attack and that very effective Wolves team. You've got Adama Traore on, on one wing and Diogo Jota on the other wing and then Raul Jimenez in the middle um, finishing off chances and also creating chances. And, and Jota in the last... Uh, I think 11 days has scored six goals, no less than six goals in, for Wolves um, against Espanyol in Europa League. And then um, a single goal at Tottenham at the weekend, uh, bringing up a third consecutive defeat for Jose Mourinho's side and, and doing so with a, with a moment of, of really sublime football skill, I think, in, the, in the, the second half of the game, taking the ball in his own half, beating several opponents with his pace and uh, quality in the ball and then setting Jimenez up for um, the decisive goal in the match. And you have to say, Wolves look like they've got a genuine chance here, um, despite not having a very deep squad, of getting one of those Champions League places, especially if the UEFA ban holds and fifth place comes into the picture as well. They're probably playing the best football of all the teams um, in the hunt for that place. I think Manchester United had a um, a good first half against Everton. They played better football in periods of that game than I've seen from them for quite a while. Bruno Fernandes has made a, a significant difference to their creativity. You've got to balance that out with the stupidity of the goal they conceded and, and Harry Maguire having another game where his positional sense is very questionable, um, allowing Everton's forwards in. In, in fact, Calvert-Lewin should have had a second goal. Um, early on in the, the match because of a, a Maguire positional error and that wasn't the, the only one in the match. Manchester United have improved, but um, Wolves do seem to be the form team in amongst that group chasing a Champions League place and it would be fascinating to um, to see what they could do in the Champions League with the the quality of personnel they have, all that squad needs out broadening out and the, the quality of management they have. Totally agree with you, Duncan. They are the form team of the current chasing pack, that's for sure. Um, Manchester City, of course, won their third consecutive EFL Cup um, on Sunday. Congratulations to them. Um, I think that's now the sixth trophy uh, in Pep Guardiola's tenure at the club. And, of course, they're still in the FA Cup and Champions League to go. But my villain of the weekend is also kind of a hero, um, villain because um, basically John Stones uh, collapsed uh, uh, like the old classic he'd been shot by a sniper um, 
just ahead of Aston Villa's goal at Wembley. Uh, hero because the manner in which he collapsed, the amount of time it took him to go down, it was like watching one of those Peter Crouch robot dances <laughs> the way he was going down. Uh, if you haven't seen it, then please uh, get on to it. It is comedic in the extreme. Um, and Gary Neville, who I think said before uh, the match against Villa at Wembley, it's a crossroads for John Stones' career um, this season. Well, whatever was on that crossroads, he certainly tripped over it quite spectacularly. So this week's villain is John Stones. Um, six six major trophies for Guardiola. Six three major league, trophies, yeah. Three league cups, one FA Cup, two Premier League. Um, but Guardiola will tell you it's eight trophies. Apparently at the press conference after the game, he was asked about the treble last season and he, he raised four fingers because to indicate... Because he won the community shield. Yeah, so he's adding those community shields into his into his. Well, Josie started that trend, Josie Mourinho, so, so I suppose he's maybe doing it to lift a finger to Josie as much as anything else, um, which we know he's akin to, likes to do. Uh, that's all for Monday's Transfer Window podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to continue the debate, and of course you do, uh, Duncan and I have been burning up our keyboards this morning already on Twitter, talking about all the major incidents that we've since had a chat. So let's hope that... Um, all you guys who are um, uh, engaging with us and girls, of course, um, listen to the podcast as well and you get even more detail on, uh, on the things that we were talking about with you this morning. Continue that debate afterwards on our social media channels. We are on um, Instagram and Facebook at Transfer Podcast, the same as we are on Twitter, same handle at Transfer Podcast. Duncan is on Instagram at Duncan.Castles and on Twitter at Duncan Castles. Same for him on Facebook. I am on Twitter at GarboSJ. Sure, you liked what you've heard. If so, you know what we'd like you to do. Do us the turn back, get us uh, on, get yourself on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. That helps us to go up the podcast uh, ratings boards, which, of course, we're, we're pretty healthy as it is, but... Um, so most more people find us the bigger the community grows and of course that's great for all of us until Wednesday we'll see you through the transfer window the Thinking Fans podcast thanks for listening